Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have James Martin as my guest with the answers. James was ranked to be the fourth among 25 individuals who have most influenced the world of computer science according to Computer World. The Sunday Times called him Britain's leading futurist. Martin has honorary doctorates from all six continents and has written more textbooks than any other living person, that is 104, many of which have been seminal in their field. He also wrote The Meaning of the 21st Century, which was made into a major film and is a Pulitzer nominee for his book, The Wired Society. James is renowned for his electrifying lectures about the future and a couple of years ago became the largest individual benefactor to Oxford University by donating over $100 million and founding the Oxford Martin School, which, was, which has 30 institutions researching the problems, dangers, and opportunities of the future. Hello, James, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. It is Hello. great to have you here on the show today. James, can you tell us a little more about yourself and your background, but especially why and how you got interested in issues such as computer science in particular and technology and the future of humanity in general? Okay, well, um, technology has always been a pretty exciting field to join. And so I, I joined IBM, came to the States, started writing textbooks, a lot of my textbooks. So uh, the main textbooks on computing in universities, and that went on for about 30 years or so. So that was the first part of my career. Then I did a lot of uh, video training. Uh, I think I did more video training than anybody else, and did a seminar going around the world in which I did five-day lectures, which is sort of like a, a marathon. And uh, that um, was done in most of the main countries, and I got to meet great people, so I got a very good feeling for what the world was like and uh, what was going wrong in the world. I got more and more worried about the, the big problems, big challenges. And so my career evolved from really programming into systems analysis, from systems analysis into designing systems for corporations and then into changing corporations, a book called CyberCorp, which is what a corporation should be in the world of cyberspace, and, uh, and then to um, dealing with problems which were not related to computing, uh, which were the, the big issues, big big problems that needed to be solved. So, if I'm to ask you to put yourself into your own words, would you say that you're a computer scientist, a change agent, as Andrew Crofts calls you, for example, an author, a lecturer, a teacher, a philanthropist, a futurist, or a filmmaker? Well, all of the above, but not, not really a philanthropist. Uh, uh, giving the money to Oxford was not philanthropy. It was trying to find a solution to a set of very serious problems. And it seems to work very well. What's going on at Oxford is very exciting indeed now. Let, let me take on that line here of reasoning. I mean, a, crit, a critic might say that, you know, the world is full of big problems and uh, there's many other charitable causes that deserve such amount of money, such as, for example, uh, alleviating poverty and malnutrition and starvation or, or child vaccinations in third world countries. Why do you think that investing in the education in a place such as Oxford University and especially future studies is so important? Well, it's, it's not education. Everything you just mentioned is quite wonderful to do. Um, you know, healing people, dealing with malaria and things like that, but they, although you can save many lives, and uh, improve the existence of many people. It really doesn't have leverage. And to change the world, you've got to say, what are those things where a relatively small action will have extremely large results? And all of the 30 institutes and projects that Oxford uh, was designed to have leverage, well, we think we can do something that is quite new, which will have a very big effect. So the, uh, that, that's the intent, uh, to really try and change the world. Uh, and so the, the book I've just read at the moment is really looking at the whole century and what can go wrong. There could be great catastrophes in the century. If we get everything right, uh, civilization could be wonderful, much better than it is now. And so it's interesting to ask the questions, what do you have to do um, 
to, to get that extreme change, what are the things which, with leverage, which are most likely to get results in making it happen? So that's basically what we're about at Oxford. So as you just said, you're looking for the place to, to have the most amount of leverage so that you can change the world. How do you see the world being changed for the better, in your view? What is your ultimate goal, in other words? What do you try to accomplish? Well, the, the, the very big problems are, are really important. I, I list 21 of them in, in the book. And the one that most people are talking about is, is climate destruction. If we go on pumping more and more carbon into the atmosphere, uh, we're going to get more and more global warming, and that's going to result in climate instability. And as one looks at the climate for thousands of years past, you see certain moments where there was a, a very fast uh, change in state in the climate. In other words, it became unstable very quickly. And that could happen in the 21st century. Uh, so that is one of the, the biggest problems, which really needs something doing about it. And uh, there, there are clear, I think it's clear now from the scientists who are working on it that, that, that we can uh, change that. Uh, but although scientists know that we can change it and know what to do, politicians don't, and the public doesn't. So there's all sorts of nonsense on television all the time, nonsense being talked from senators in the United States. So not close to taking the actions which the world really needs to take in order to stop climate destruction. So would you say that climate change and climate destruction is the largest, biggest, most dangerous problem that we're facing in the 21st century? Or is it... Yes, I think, I think that's true, but, but it's, um, it's probably more important to say that all the different problems are linked together. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a connected set of, of issues which you really need to deal, deal with all of them, um, and very often dealing with one is going to help the others. So an integrated set of solutions is, is what is needed. So am I correct to say that then you're hoping that um, through education and research in, in the full spectrum of the problems that we're facing, we could come with a sort of a, a solution which could either apply across the board or which could be fine-tuned within each dimension as needed so that we can resolve most of those issues, hopefully in a positive manner within this century. It's many solutions, but they're interconnected solutions. Mm -hmm. And like any very big problem, when you do something, you're never going to get it quite right. So it's, they're all going to have to be tuned and adjusted as we see, see the results. And some of the things which will be surprises or not be optimal will relate to politics. So you are going to need to expect that you'll have politicians not doing the right thing and... And the question comes, how do you deal with a situation like that? No, that may be a very difficult set of problems. So you've mentioned politics. Um, would that mean that our problem is political? Or is it in some sense, say, for example, when we speak to cli about climate change, uh, it could be perhaps a technological problem with, related to our CO2 emissions and the required... Uh, technological solutions to resolve that issues, or is it a combination of both the political will to implement the hopefully technological solutions that we're looking for? Well, I think it's very strongly technological. Mm -hmm. uh, we find uh, the right technological solutions, but they all um, need, need large-scale action. So you've got to have uh, the public spending the money on the right things, politicians doing the right thing. How do you, um, a huge problem, for example, is that China is building two coal power stations a week, and they're huge, something like a billion watts of uh, stuff going into the atmosphere is doing. China itself is an enormous harm. But if the rest of the world does everything right and China continues to do that, then we're going to have the climate being very badly damaged indeed. So uh, you then need to start to ask the question, how do we have a, a dialogue with China or a relationship with China in which it will be to China's advantage to stop building new coal power stations all the time. And that's a pretty complicated uh, set of arguments. Well, let me see here if I can continue that thought about technology. In Andrew Croft's book, The Change Agent, uh, that I just read uh, probably a week ago uh, before my interview with Andrew, he quotes you in one place uh, saying that Part of the problem, at least, is the fact that we are so narrowly specialized nowadays that there is no one 
certain expert or person or field of studies which looks at the general direction of all the fields or sort of creates an inter interdisciplinary ap approach and sort of guidance and, and strategy to address those issues. Um, so do you think that uh, the James Martin School provides such a, an interdisciplinary approach? Uh, yes, it does. Right, right from the beginning, we understood that that was the case. But you might take one narrow subject, which sounds technical, uh -huh. like um, the design of vaccines to deal with illnesses which are very bad illnesses. That sounds like a technical problem. But in fact, when you go into details, you uh, have got to say, how do you get those vaccines into use? It's going to be fairly expensive to manufacture the vaccines. Who's going to manufacture them? Will they manufacture them now or will they wait until there's a pandemic? If there is a pandemic, what are the global consequences of that pandemic? Everything you do is going to hurt somebody. And so there are a lot of political problems relating to that. There are a lot of ethical problems. So there's a large uh, uh, ethics contingent in the school and many philosophical Problems and Oxford, I think, has got more philosophers than any other university. So all of these different talents and skills uh, come together, and for every one of the thirty institutes and projects, we've got that interdisciplinary uh, mixture. Uh -huh. um, now, a person doing a PhD doesn't want you to use the word interdisciplinary. He's got one discipline. He wants to write papers for the journal of that discipline, and he focuses totally on what he's going to be an expert on. And that's an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, so how do you make him an, an interdisciplinary person? Well, in the school, we don't have anybody who is working for a PhD because they wouldn't want to do that. Uh, but we have quite a lot of uh, institutes which have got a team, for example, of eight people, where there are eight uh, different postdoctorates in different disciplines, and they're all working on the same problem. They talk a different language in the beginning. Uh -huh. But they begin to realize that it's by understanding each other and cooperating that they're going to solve the problem. And this is a very uh, important thing to do. And usually they find that very enjoyable. So you get a lot of postdocs who have never done anything other than work on one discipline, but now they get to be part of a team, which is a multidisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. And that really is new in academia. Yeah, it, it was actually perhaps one among several reasons that led me to, to stop my education after a master's degree and not, not to continue and do a PhD, actually. Um, Anyway, let me go back to, to uh, your book, which eventually turned into a movie uh, narrated by Michael Douglas called The Meaning of the 21st Century. So what is the meaning of the 21st century, according to James Martin? Well, at the beginning of the 21st century, we clearly have a situation where the world isn't working. There are many problems on the, on the planet. There's outrageous differences between the very rich and the very poor. There's the possible danger of nuclear war or biological war, all, all manner of big problems. Um, and in fact, the 21st century is sufficiently dangerous to think. Uh, Martin Rees, who was the um, head of the Royal Society in, in London, where all scientists would like to be fellow of the Royal Society if they could be, he was also the Astronomer Royal, uh, wrote a book called Our Final Century, in which he said there's probably not more than a 50% chance that civilization is going to exist by the end of the century. So this is indicating that we've moved into a century that's very dangerous, but on the other hand, we're we very clever with technology. We can create all sorts of solutions. So we need to say, what are the dangers? What are the problems? What are the solutions? Then why is it difficult to implement the solutions? How do we understand the social factors or the political factors and, and get that right so that we can get the solutions into place? And if we get that right... Uh, I believe the end of the 21st century could be an absolutely wonderful place to live, where we've got the climate stable and uh, the mix of jobs that people are carrying out is very different from today, much more enjoyable work, much more enjoyable lifestyles, very large amount of leisure, maybe even something which is a new uh, renaissance, but a high-tech renaissance, looking very different from the renaissance of Florence. So if I'm to paraphrase you, uh, would it be accurate to say that the meaning of the 21st century would be, in a sense, a watershed uh, during uh, or a period during which we would make a decision and we would either go forward into, as you called it, a new renaissance or backwards into a new dark age and, and maybe even extinction. Yeah. 
Yes, I think that's a fair comment. And in order to move in the best direction, we need as many people as possible to understand what's going on, understand what is possible and what the dangers are, mm -hmm. and to set about taking the right actions and teaching the right people. And it's not one single thing. It's many different things. Uh, beginning of this century, it's a very complex society which doesn't really work, very complex set of civilizations which don't really work. And at the end of the century, we want something which does work, where we have a very good relationship with the climate and the ecology, and um, uh, this is extremely, co extremely complex indeed. So to get everything to work, you need extremely elaborate computer systems mm -hmm. with very high bandwidth networks. And, of course, those are coming together. So we're going to have the technology that we want for dealing with this. You, you just mentioned uh, that, according to some people, uh, we have about 50% chances of survival. I mean, the estimates on that vary dramatically from less than 1% to some people who are giving us over 90%. I mean, Ray Kurzweil is often being criticized for being too optimistic. There's other people who have said in the past that civilization extinctions are one reason, for example, why we're not seeing other interplanetary or intergalactic civilizations uh, in the universe. Uh, so where about do you stand on that spectrum? I mean, I, I gather that you're a very much an optimist, but how would you rate our chances of survival? I, I don't really get myself as either an optimist or, or a pessimist. I spent a lot of my life... Uh, being confronted with very difficult problems when I was working in IBM, for example, and having to have a set of uh, people that find solutions to the problems, and if you get the solutions right, then you can make a very big uh, difference. And I think that's the situation now. If we get things wrong, it's going to be bad. If we get things right, it's going to be very good, but it's up to us. We've got to get the understanding, get the training in place, uh, understand the solutions, which we're pretty good at, and then have the... Uh, human agreement to put the solutions into place. And if we manage to do all of those things, all of which I regard as, as uh, doable, not easy, but doable, then we end up at the end of the century being uh, much safer than it is now. Would you care to attach or would you dare to attach a number percentage-wise to, to that estimate? I think Martin Rees uh, is... Uh, Pretty close in saying 50%. 50%. Okay. Um, so, what about your current and ongoing project? I mean, I, I did some research, of course, before our interview, and I saw that your ongoing project is titled The Transformation of Humankind. Uh, would you care to share a little bit with our viewers and listeners about that? What is the transformation of yes. humankind? Well, I think, you know, if you're in the middle of a revolution, you can't really see what is happening. And I think this has been true in, in all revolutions. And I believe that we're in the middle of the biggest revolution ever in three billion years on, on Earth. And it started about um, 1750, started in the middle of the 18th century, uh, when the Industrial Revolution happened, and many other things happened at the same time. Adam Smith wrote his book which changed the world of finance. Um, the, the year 1776 was a, an extraordinary one. Three things happened in 1776. First, of course, the, uh, America came into existence and kicked the British out. Um, that same year, uh, Adamson's Wealth of Nations was published. The same year, James Watt produced a steam engine, which really worked. And this was the beginning of something enormous. It wasn't only a change in technology, it was a very serious change in politics. And the American Declaration of Independence was, you know, one of the great political documents of all time. And then you got the French Revolution, and out of that came the French Declaration of the Rights of uh, Man, and um, and this spread from one nation to another. And so kings uh, started to lose their power everywhere. And so there was the beginning of an enormous transformation in civilization and technology in the world. At the beginning of that story, Britain was a rather insignificant uh, country, uh, and by the end of Queen Victoria's reign, one-third of all the people on the planet were subjects of Queen Victoria. How on earth did that happen? If you read almost any history book on the subject, they'll say it happened because of politicians and because of people. Um, I think that's completely wrong. It happened because of technology. Because once uh, England had got steam engine, it built factories which could make 
goods which are cheaper than anywhere else. And so all over the world it was um, shipping in raw materials so it could uh, make goods which could sell all over the world. It created uh, great ships with steam power uh, for the first time. And so really technology that drove that extreme change. Now that technology was the start of an avalanche, you know, like a mountain avalanche. And the technology's changed and changed and changed until we got to the uh, beginning of the 20th century. Amazingly, at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, there weren't any motor cars except one to very experimental examples. So nearly everybody was going around like they do on BBC shows, you know, with horse and carts and things and horse and carriages. And amazingly, it took 70 years to get from the first motor cars in Paris to the Concorde, which travelled at uh, supersonic speed. Amazingly short time. And then we got the, uh, the growth of computing, which was incredible, the growth of telecommunications. We then began to get the biological uh, technologies, um, the understanding of the human genome. Um, at the beginning of this century, the understanding of how to change the human genome. So many of these things all come together. And what we're going to be seeing is we're going to be changing people. We're going to be changing people with education. So they become educated and do very different things. But we're also likely to change their genetics. You wouldn't want to change their genes directly because they pass that on to their children and you might get it wrong. But what we can do is introduce a 24th chromosome, which is never passed on to children. And then that 24th chromosome, you can put any new genes that you want. Uh, at the same time, we're getting the capability to change humans in many other ways. So we talk about the term transhumanism. And very important, and that I think will be putting um, tiny things in the brain, which the brain learns to use, nanotechnology devices. I think probably the most important of these will be graphene, very thin layer of graphene just inside the skull, which the brain learns to use. And that connects your brain directly to external computers. We're seeing the beginning of that in computer games today, but that is going to be something which will be a very important, very powerful technology. So we are changing society, we're changing technology, we're changing jobs, uh, we're going to have highly intelligent robots. Many people, I think 80% of all the jobs being done today will be done better by machines. So a huge change. And, and that's going to change to a leisure society, massive amount of leisure. And that brings up the question, how do people use leisure effectively? And so that started to ask sort of renaissance-like questions. You know, if you've got a very large number of people with a high level of leisure, how do they spend their time? What is the best way to spend that leisure so that you have a high level of happiness in, in civilization? And so I'd like to draw a curve in which you'd say we're starting at the left-hand side of the curve and going up until the top. There's a plateau at the bottom. There's a plateau at the top. And the extreme part of that curve is the 21st century. So we're moving into a time now where we will have the singularity. We'll have extreme change, extreme change in biology, extreme change in business, extreme change in power structures on the planet. And this extreme change will get so fast that it will be too fast for, for most people. And I think they'll probably be burnt out by the end of the century. So by the end of the century, we'll be reaching a a plateau well beyond the singularity, in which if we get it right, we will have a very different world from today. So that's a revolution. I mean, there's never been a revolution like that before. And so that's what my new book is about, trying to put together all the pieces of the, the revolution. It's interesting, all the pieces seem to fit together. You, you just mentioned the singularity. Just for the benefit of our um, read, uh, viewers and listeners, I mean, there's a very wide variety of definitions and interpretations of the meaning of the term. Would you uh, mind uh, defining it in your own words for us, please? Well, maybe I could define it in other people's words. A lot of people have said that the rate of change will accelerate until you get to a point where it will be totally out of control. And um, some of the more extreme people say we're going to destroy civilization as we move into that massive rate of change. And some people say we'll destroy civilization by 2030. And uh, I, I believe that that extreme change is going to happen. I'd agree with Kurzweil in the numbers he uses. So we could talk about the speed of changing computing and telecommunications and everything. But I would not agree that this is going to break civilization. I think the big, uh, powerful companies like Google and Dell and Hewlett Packard and IBM are totally aware that this is going to happen. They are looking 20 years ahead. 
and they're absolutely going to say, how do we stop intelligent machines from taking control? How do we, how do we stop the computers from getting out of hand, getting out of control? And there are lots of good answers to that question. So I believe we're going to be moving ahead with quite a long-term plan. For example, um, today you've got computers, well, in, in the year 2000, you had computers which could do a trillion operations per second. So we built a special network for those called the TerraGrid, TerraMinion Trillion. And now we've got computers which do uh, a thousand trillion operations per second, um, which we call uh, Peter flops, uh, 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 thousand trillion operations per second. And we now know what we've got to do in order to build computers, computers which are a million trillion. We call those exaflops computers. So we go from the the terascale computers to the petascale computers, the exascale computers in about 2020. They're the same probably by 2018. And then we go from that to uh, a billion trillion operations per second, which is a tera flops computer, a teragrid having networks which can connect together computers of that power. And it's, when we get up to a billion trillion, then people shake their heads in despair and say that's going to destroy society and computers are going to take over and everything. But uh, I don't believe that will happen. And we'll go on from that to the era of maybe 2040, probably a bit before 2040, in which we use the term uh, yotta. Yotta grid, yotta flops, meaning a trillion, trillion operations per second. In one machine, and vast numbers of those machines all over the planet, and networks interconnecting them. Now, in order to go on that journey, you've got to change the operating systems. In fact, you've got to change the basic software in fundamental ways. So today, people, we've got we've got software for the machines which are a thousand trillion operations per second. And today, people are looking very hard at the exascale computing, which is a, a million trillion operations per second. And you've got an international consortium all over the world which is uh, understanding what those machines will be like, what their applications will be like, uh, how they will be built into networks, and how software has got to change. There'll be ultra-parallel machines which changes the software. So what this is saying is you've got a large number of exceedingly brilliant people planning in detail how they will control computers which are a thousand times more powerful than now. And then by the time you get into the, this decade, uh, you'll be looking ahead to uh, the time when you've got machines which are um, terascale. The exascale computers will be here by 2020, and I think they'll be working very well and under control and having a, a, an extreme effect on the economy. So then you're going to have the software people looking ahead to 10 years beyond that. And this will go on all the time. And if there's any suggestion that the machines are going to destroy society, or machines are going to take over, uh, take over from human beings, or, you know, there's one famous computer scientist who says that uh, computers will keep us as pets. Well, uh, imagine uh, a top-level meeting of the best people in IBM confronted with the issue that computers will keep us as pets. They're <laughs> not going to allow that to happen. They're going to say, how can we put all sorts of technology into the machines and the networks is everything else so that uh, humans are still in control and not kept as pets. So in that sense, what do you say to critics uh, who are very anti-technology and who say have come from a variety of perspectives? For example, some techno-critics would say technology has never changed or improved or challenged fundamentally the human condition. Uh, others would say, for example, uh, stemming from the philosophy of Samuel Butler in the 19th century and Darwin among the machines and going through Ted Kaczynski and the Unabomber, they would say, yes, technology has helped us up until a certain point, but then beyond that point, which is arguably somewhere in 18th century or so, then machines came to exist during the Industrial Revolution, and from then on, uh, since they are most likely to be the next step of evolution, we are very likely to go extinct, and therefore the future belongs to the machines and not to us. Well, I think what my life would have been like if it hadn't been for machines. You know, people, people at the, the bottom of the uh, pyramid had, had terrible lives. They were, they were regarded as just creatures, creatures who looked after the farm animals, creatures which you could send to war, and they had the most interesting, no, they had no education, awful, awful lives. And if it hadn't been for um, technology, in fact, if the technology hadn't changed um, in the 20th century, 
if it, if it hadn't changed since, say, 1930, uh, people still had awful lives. And so I, I go around the world and I, I've been going through a country in Africa where there's no education, people are in terrible shape. I'm looking at the, the, the kids there and saying, no, if it wasn't for the technology of the West, that's what my life would be like. And so if Samuel Butler was here today, I'd like to show him those kids in Africa and then show him the life that I've got and say, do you think that's not an improvement? Uh, and we're going to get that ongoing improvement. You know, obviously think about my kids and grandchildren, what, what will their life be like? And I believe it can be very much better than my life. But but it's, but it's take here is not the debating the gradual improvement, but the fact that gradually, according to, for example, Ted Kaczynski, we're being seduced by technology, and step by step, we're giving up control until one day, according to his uh, manifesto, we surrender our whole existence to the machines, and we are de facto absolutely incapable to exist without them, and combining that with a potential singularity or the birth of artificial intelligence, which becomes self-aware, uh, wouldn't then, wouldn't we be then facing the potential rebellion and, and overthrow of us by, by the machines? I mean... Uh, manifesto, you just mentioned of the uniform, is very important and very well written and we need to take it very seriously. And there are many other uh, statements like that from people who are not uh, bombers uh, we need to take all the negative views very seriously. We, uh, we need to get the philosophers looking at what is happening now. And mm -hmm. uh, if we get things wrong, sure, we could destroy human lives. We're going to move into a world where the meaning of privacy, it's almost already happened, the meaning of privacy has no relation to the meaning of privacy in the mid-20th century. So how do you build a life which is a very good, uh, happy life, uh, when the machines will know absolutely everything about you. We've got small cameras, uh, nanotechnology everywhere. You know, the, the, the computers will be your, your wallpaper watching everything you do. And these are very, very important issues. We need to address those and put together a whole jigsaw puzzle. And as you put together the jigsaw puzzle, there's some very bad things about it and some very good things. And so then we've got to say, okay, how do we get rid of the bad things? How do we design a society which I would want to live in? which my children would want to live in, which is a, uh, a world of uh, nanotechnology everywhere, uh, which is obviously coming. Uh, how do you live in a world in which you've got computers which are going to be a, uh, a million trillion operations per second? And this is a very complicated set of questions. And, and to, really, that's what the school is, at Oxford is, is all about. It's looking at many different types of issues, and it's saying... Given uh, uh, those things happening, how, how do we make the world a better place? Uh, and if we don't make some changes, we need technology. For, for example, as I look, say, 30 years ahead, and uh, assume that we get more or less business as usual, global warming uh, does continue. Um, ultimately, uh, the public will be very scared of global warming, so there will be a very strong political desire to change it. But that certainly isn't here at the moment. But I think that global warming and climate destruction will get to such a stage that many farms in Africa, many farms in the equatorial, sub-equatorial regions will close. Many places will run out of water, and you can't grow food without water. China, for example, cannot possibly feed itself. So China's looking all over the world for how can it uh, gain access to land which enabled it will enable it to feel, feed the people of China. But anyway, you put all these things together and say, if we're not very careful, if we don't do the right things, which is probably the case, you'll have famine on a scale that's never been seen before, a giga famine. Famine meaning that a billion people die. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's very likely, if we continue with business as usual, continue what we're doing today, continue to refuse to build nuclear power stations, continue to build as many coal power stations as we possibly can, um, then you are going to uh, have damage to climate, which will cause bigger famine. Interestingly enough, uh, this kind of uh, Malthusian argument, uh, solution, according to you, is most likely to come not from governments, but from companies such as Google, IBM, HP, and so on. Why do you think that's the case? 
Why do you think that companies are more likely to, to address the global issues? The government and the court civil servants are doing about these issues today, and most of them are not doing very much. In fact, I would think the, if you look at the civil service in most countries, it's net negative in, in the value that it has on people's lives. Meanwhile, you've got all sorts of very bright people saying, look, a new problem's coming. If I can solve those problems, I can make a fortune. Now, what are new forms of energy? How can you stop the Chinese building two massive power stations a week. When you look at all the issues involved in that, there's really only one way that you can stop them, and that's get a new form of energy which is cheaper than coal. And that's the leverage point. Get a new form of energy that's cheaper than coal, and the whole world will change incredibly. And so you can say, is that going to be wind? No, wind, wind won't get cheap enough. Is it going to be days solar cells? No, they're not going to be cheap enough. Uh, and uh, anything you can look at. So it's got to be something uh, different. Now, the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth is absolutely enormous. It would uh, provide thousands of times the energy that humankind needs. So we need a way of capturing sunlight and converting it into electricity in a mass-produced way, so it gets very low cost. And there are lots of different types of solar cells, and probably very important is going to be organic. All solar cells are crystalline today, expensive to manufacture. We're still going to have organic solar cells, I hope, one of the institutes in the school is busy working on organic solar cells. Once you've got those, they'll be less efficient than today's solar cells, but they'll be very cheap to mass produce. They'll be so cheap that women's clothes will be solar cells. You know, you can build them into clothing. In fact, women who've got expensive diamond brooches and things like that can have their clothes generating light so that people can see the diamonds that they're wearing. But that, that's facetious. What, what I'm saying is, you have new types of solar energy which will be very inexpensive, much cheaper than electricity from coal. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there's a big change going on in the nuclear industry in which you'll have uh, two totally different things. Today, a big nuclear power station would take about 10 years to build, and it would take another 10 years to get government approval for it. It's um, very complex and difficult technology, but we now have fundamentally new uh, technology in nuclear power, new reactions. And these reactions have enabled us to build uh, power stations which are not much bigger than a domestic refrigerator. And if a company buys them, it, it buys the whole thing, it puts it underground, and it, it's never refueled. When the fuel runs out, the manufacturer comes back and takes the unit back to its uh, factory and puts a new unit in place. So these are ultra-safe. The manufacturer knows exactly how to dispose of the components, and they're very easy to implement. And if you took those from being one-off, which they are today, to being mass-produced, 100,000 at a time, they would be cheaper than Chinese coal. Uh -huh. And you've got fusion. You've got two gigantic problem projects in fusion today. Uh, and basically, they want to build something like the sun on Earth, where you've got a hydrogen uh, process and the sun. But every scientist working on them says that's not going to be feeding the grid for 40 years. And our big problem is within the next 20 years. In fact, we've got to do something pretty impressive in the next 10 years. So we're spending a colossal amount of money on something that will be too late. Well, meanwhile, there's a bunch of kids in California who have said, well, it doesn't have to be hydrogen. Let's look at every single atom in the periodic table and every variation of that atom and work out whether or not it can fuse. And they found many of them will. So there's no end of new types of fusion. And there's one bunch of young people with very low funding who have built a fusion unit. It's small enough to go into a 40-foot shipping container, and it uses fusion with boron-11, not hydrogen. And they haven't got it completely working yet, but they're well on the way. They probably will reach break-even. They probably will get something which uh, generates electricity from that. Now, it will be my guess that if they got the right funding and the right intellect, they would be producing uh Hot fusion, uh, cheaper than Chinese coal power stations in 20 years' time, maybe within 10 years' time. So what, what all of this is saying is there are huge opportunities for very bright individuals to come up with very bright solutions. That's exactly like computing 50 years ago. 50 years ago, and well, ever since, you had every entrepreneur on the sun trying to dream up new software, new types of computers, Ken Olson coming up with mini-computers, and IBM said, why don't you go on mini-computers? And then Bill Gates and the rest coming up with personal computers, Steve Jobs, uh, the Macintosh, 
the iPad is constantly changing. The software is constantly changing. And this can be the same with power. It can be the same with all of the other things, which are the dangerous problems of the 21st century. So is it the breakthrough in power uh, in electricity and energy generation that inspires you the most, that you're most hopeful for, or is it something else? What, what is it that makes you the most that gives you the most hope for the future? Well, everywhere I go, mixed with intelligent young people, um, there the are brilliant people. They've got entirely new ideas, and they have an excitement about them. They say, we, we want to try and make this happen. We want to build something new, something entirely new. I go all over the world, you know, I get seminars all over the world, do a lot of traveling, and kids come up all the time, sometimes lecture audiences in poor countries and things like that, and they come up to me afterwards and they say, how can I get to America? They don't say, how can I get to China? How can I get to Russia? How can I get to England? They say, the reason for that is that they believe that the country where they're most likely to succeed is America. So you've got the Statue of Liberty saying, you know, give me your... uh, deadbeats, the, the, the dreadful people on the shore of your country and send them to America. Uh, I would change the wording a little bit on the Statue of Liberty and say, give me your brightest kids and we will enable them to succeed. Mm-hmm. I feel that is America today. And so everywhere I go, you, you get this feeling that changes in the air and the brightest people are going to take advantage of it. The brightest people are going to build wonderful new things just as they have had in the computer industry for the last 50 years. But that geopolitical situation in the primacy of America, isn't that also one of the things that's fundamentally being challenged and changing? I mean, there seem to be a lot of computer scientists who have spent the last two decades in the States, and now they're going back to their native India or China, and they're saying that the future is there now, and, and that there's a whole geopolitical shift, uh, economical uh, political, technological, even if you will, educational, if you will, if you will also, and it's there's a whole new scientific revolution going on in in India and in China and places such as Singapore, Taiwan, uh, and so on. Yeah, there is. It's very exciting. Um, part of your question about why I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about China. Excited about Singapore. Excited about India. I spent much of my life in, in software. <laughs> And software is something you can measure, you know, you can measure the reliability, you can measure function points, you can measure quality, you can measure um, function points per person hour of the developers. And so there are many different measures of software, and they're fairly accurate, precise measures. And by any measure, the software coming out of India today is better than the software coming out of America. And uh, I say that as a person who spent much of his life in American software. Uh, where are we going to get the computers which will take us into the singularity? Well, by the one that is far the closest, by far the most powerful supercomputer in the world today, is much more powerful, twice as powerful as the most powerful American computer, yeah. the new one from China. And uh, a lot of people say, well, that's China, you know, it's not real. I had a, a detailed look at it, asked all the questions I could, took it about, you know, mentally as far as possible, and it's absolutely real. That's a genuine supercomputer which is twice the power of the supercomputers which we've got here. So it's going to be India and China which are leading us into the singularity as well as America, as well as uh, other high-tech countries. I remember listening to a talk given by David Chalmers, um, I think in West Point, and the general consensus among his audience was that uh, America has no choice but to continue research in the singularity because, you see, if it's not an American singularity, it would be a Chinese singularity. And the Chinese singularity we have no control over, uh, and therefore we should continue investing and researching into artificial intelligence uh, very heavily in in America. And I also have uh, followed that uh, with an interview with Ben Gertzel, who is a very notable artificial intelligence researcher, and who actually has positions uh, together with Professor Hugo de Garis, I think in, uh, in China also. And uh, he said very much so that it is not impossible that the singularity may be a Chinese one rather than a, a Western one. I think it will be a global singularity because the new ideas in America are immediately picked up by China. The new ideas in India 
I think a lot of much better human factories are going to come from India, all sorts of new things. Are, but India may invent it, but, but three months later, it's, he, he's getting it from Apple or getting it from Chinese corporations or other corporations. So it spreads globally very fast. But certainly, you've got a very large number of very brilliant people in China working on computing and having ambitions to take computing far beyond what it is today. Mm-hmm. India set up a, a university which was a replica of MIT called IIT, Indian Institute of Technology. Yeah. It worked extremely well. They got very bright students and uh, the best professors possible. So they said, okay, that worked, let's do it again. So they built a second one and then six of them and then 16. Wow. Well, today there are 16 Indian Institutes of Technology and they're all on a level with MIT. They're absolutely brilliant. And then they said, okay, let's hold it at 16 because we don't want the quality to, to get lower. But um, this is saying a very important thing. It used to think just about America doing great things, or America and Europe. But, but now India is doing great things on a much larger scale because they've got a much larger population. Yeah. And same with China. And uh, well, there are large parts of the world that you know it. Uh, so uh, you've, got, uh, you pro- you've probably got about uh, th- 3 billion people in the world which are on the leading edge of technology and are part of countries which will be driving the singularity forward and also driving all of the other technologies forward. And many of those will obey their own rules rather than obeying the rules which America has. Let's look at the flip side of the coin then. What is the thing that scares you the most? Or what do you think is the biggest danger or the biggest obstacle on the road to prosperity and to uh, or utopia, as Andrew put it? Well, I think uh, the technology, uh, in the way you were describing it a bit earlier, is, is, is dangerous. And if we move to a world in which we will have uh, gigafamine, I mean, that's going to be a world which will have absolute chaos in, in many parts of it. So uh, the big problems, huge problems, which we see on the horizon now in the 21st century, people might say, which one of those scares you? Well, I couldn't say any one, but they're all going to connect together. And so you've got to find some way of getting solutions to all of those main problems. Otherwise, the world is going to go to the dogs very fast. It's going to be, you might call it a new dark age. And so the possibility of civilization disintegrating and having a new dark age by the end of the century is the thing that scares me most. Mm-hmm. And we can stop it. But it will take a lot of intelligent people communicating very well to be able to stop it. So is that how you see yourself and your, your sort of um, contribution to the world? Is that the primary activity you're um, engaged in for the last couple of years at least, or maybe the last decade? Yes, that's right. Yeah, last, last decade, and uh, it's come together amazingly well, better than I could have imagined at, at Oxford, with the Oxford Margin School, but it's coming together in many other places. And so I'm writing another book on the subject now, which sort of paints the good news and the bad news and what what the difference between them is. James, I would like to bring our interview to an end um, with the question about the one message that you may have to our listeners and our viewers today that you would like us to take away from this interview. What do you think is the most important message you could send out? Anybody, I think, coming to your website knows that technology is accelerating very fast. It will continue to accelerate in the way that Kurzweil describes. But a very important message is that that acceleration is not going to destroy us. We are going to remain in control of it. The most stupid thing you possibly say about the future of computers is that machine intelligence will be like human intelligence. It won't. Machine intelligence and human intelligence will be utterly and completely, unbelievably different. And that's fortunate. And we've got to make sure that human intelligence aided by machine intelligence stays in charge, in control, plans what they want the world to be like, and the computers are their only machines, whereas we are you know, intelligent biological creatures. We've got to make sure that the uh, intelligent creatures, homo sapiens, uh, plans what the future sh- should look like, has got very good plans, then make sure that technology itself doesn't destroy the plans which we are putting together. So in effect your message is acceleration is real but that's a good thing because we can stay in control. 
and we can direct it yeah. to a positive outcome. If the acceleration was real and we didn't stay in control, in other words, if we were moving towards the singularity but we're not thinking about it, not thinking about the consequences, not thinking about the safeguards, not designing the safeguards, and the technology is all on our side in designing the safeguards, but that's a very complex subject because, you know, what do you do about privacy? What do you do? One of the biggest aspects of the revolution we're in the middle of incredible change is that at the beginning of the Iraq war, the generals would all say, we don't want robots. We don't want robot soldiers. It's the courage of human beings that war is all about. And now they're all saying, give me as many robots as you can possibly get. We want flying robots. We want robots on the sea. So just as all manner of uh, new computers, uh, new new corporations were trying to build different computers when the mini computer age began. Now you've got corporations all over the place dreaming up radically new types of robots. They want to make the robots as intelligent as possible. But that changes the whole philosophy of warfare when it's not human courage. One human with courage fighting another human with courage, whether it's swords in the old days or it's the trenches of World War One, it's now going to be machines, not humans. So what does that do to the future of warfare? Now, you can add to that that the, the India recently built a, a cruise missile which could go, they, they tested it traveling for a thousand miles and going through a window which was about a foot square and going right through the target and zipping underneath the radar and everything. They're now building a version of that cruise missile which goes at eight times the speed of sound. So you're going to get this autonomous, intelligent, robotic warfare with cruise missiles at eight times the speed of sound. And this is going to be part of the equation of what we're talking about. We've got to make sure we're in control of it. Interestingly enough, as a side note, this is how I ended up being interested in the singularity. Uh, because originally I was a political scientist um, with very strong interest in, in ethics and philosophy as applied to armed conflict. And uh, I was looking for, for an interesting topic for my thesis, and I ended up writing a paper called uh, Hacking Destiny, Critical Security at the Intersection of Machine and Human Intelligence. And that's exactly what I was looking at, and the rise of ro robots, which back in 2003 there were very few of them, by now, we're looking at probably over 10,000 different models in, in, uh, you know, uh, from the Mars to the swords to the packpots to, you know, the reapers and, and uh, all yeah. kinds of uh, even underwater uh, autonomous vehicles and, you know, the whole spectrum. So, <laughs> interestingly enough, this is exactly how I, I came to be interested in the singularity and, and uh those are indeed very fundamental questions that we need to answer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time, James. I really appreciate uh, you being with us on the show today. Well, thank you, Nicola. It's very good being here. Um, best of luck to all of you. Thank you. <laughs>